before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Endgame. Joining me, as always, in our quest for who knows what is the great and good Bill Fleckenstein from Seattle. Bill, how are you? I'm doing fine. How are you this post-4th of July Monday? Post-4th of July Tuesday. I hate to be the one to break it. Oh, jeez. But it's Tuesday. Yeah, I guess you're right about that. Tuesday, Mate, I'm good. I'm good. I am eager to get to a conversation with our guest this morning, a gentleman that I had the great privilege of talking to at the beginning of the year, and he gave a very upbeat outlook for commodities and he's nailed it you know so as we find ourselves in the middle of 2022 and commodities doing what they're doing you know jeff curry is one of the most widely respected voices i think in the commodities complex i don't think there's any argument about that what do you think certainly i think he's got the most experience and is the, the most well thought of and obviously being at goldman um, he has an interesting vantage point from two sides a the research and b what do the customers think about these ideas it's, and uh you know, that's one thing it's always hard to know is what's the real quote unquote consensus what do people believe what's kind of priced in and I think he's got a unique vantage point for, for looking at both sides of the of the equation yeah it's a, it's a great point I say we see if we can dig into that vantage point what do you reckon and bring him on yeah I really I really like to get going all right here we go well Jeff welcome to the end game it's an absolute delight to have you join us um in this series it's it's a real pleasure to have you thanks for taking the time great thanks for having me there's so much to talk about in the commodity complex right now. And I want to kind of frame this with a conversation you and I had at the start of the year on another venue where you called really exactly what's happening without the, obviously the advanced knowledge, I don't think of the, of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, but you talked about the commodities complex and why you felt we were, we were setting up for a brand new bull market. And I want to kind of spend a lot of time talking about that, but I think probably makes sense at the beginning to get some kind of sense of where you place where we are now in historical context and any similarities or differences that you see this time around from the 70s, from the early 2000s. So perhaps we could start with that. Yeah, I think first and foremost, the biggest difference is the policy response. Actually, they are kind of similar to the 70s in the sense that you see windfall, profit taxes, power price caps, subsidies to to lower income consumers, um, re-regulation of these industries, and the list goes on. Um, But there's one other layer of this in terms of policy that really distinguishes, and that revolves around ESG and the environmental policy, um, which is creating a further disincentive for investors to be able to make investments in this space. Um, And in terms of looking at what's going to solve these problems, there is only one solution, and that is investment. Um, And at this point right now, what we're seeing are outflows, Um, particularly for the last two to three months, whether if it's in the equities or in commodity-related credit, commodity-related equities, or the commodities themselves, um, you know, what we've seen is huge declines in, in outflows and over recessionary concerns or whatever it might be um, at a time when the sector needs capital more than it ever has had. 
Are those outflows largely attributed to ESG concerns, or is it just a, a refusal to believe that um, this cycle survives any kind of recession and there'll be better entry points down the track? Yeah, I think there are three reasons why we're seeing that. And in Europe, ESG is at the top of that list, and in um, the United States, ESG is at the bottom. Asia is probably somewhere in between. Um, the the second reason is just a history of really bad returns. When you look at the sector, um, you know, two years ago, oil prices were negative. Um, the, you know, I like to point out you know, that the you know look at the you know the the EMPs during the last decade they destroyed nearly fifty cents on every dollar they were given. And in the 1990s, it was 27 cents on every dollar they were given. Um, and that's far back as I know the history. So there was only a period from around 02 or 03 through 2011, 2012, that they weren't wealth-destroying entities. And that's what sits in people's minds. Um, similarly, let's look at the commodity indices. You know, they were down 60% the last decade. That's wealth destruction in, in most people's memories. Um, so I think that that is a big hurdle to overcome, and it may even be bigger than the ESG one. I know it is in the U.S., not sure about Europe. Then the third reason is the volatility is just simply too high for, for many investors to stomach. You know, I'm, I mean, today alone, we're down $6.50. You know, it's over 5%. And by the way, it's not just oil, you know, beans, copper, all of it. And people look at that and they go, I just can't bear that type of volatility, but that's life in a physical market. It may not be life in a financial market, but in a physical market, it really is. Um, actually, I'm going to take a segue on that point that you know people go, oh, commodities, they're impossible to forecast. Um, I agree near term because they got the weather shocks and all these other things that are impossible to forecast. But the further you go out in time, the more stable they become. And it's the opposite of the financial markets. Another way to say this, I like to say, um, commodity markets are really simple to model because they're dictated by economics, but incredibly hard to forecast because it has things like weather. And the further you go out in time, the least important those weathers becomes, and then the more important supply and technology trends become, which are much easier to forecast. In contrast, when we think about financial markets, they're driven by expectations. You just got to figure out what everybody else thinks. Near term, um, you know, it's, it's much easier to figure out what everybody thinks. You know, right now it's all about a recession, but the further you go out, you know, it becomes really difficult to do it. So another way to say it, like to say, you know, financial markets um, are rather easy to forecast near term, but incredibly difficult longer term. Commodities are easier um, longer term, but incredibly different near term. And I think it's that difficulty in near term and the volatility that things like weather create, it makes investors want to avoid the space altogether. So those would be the top three reasons. I think the big issue is getting over those poor returns. And one last point on, on, on this um, segue is the question about why do these super cycles last 12 years? The one in the 70s started in 68, ended in 80. The one in the 2000s started in 02 and ended in 14. I think I know why now. Because I asked an asset allocator recently, um, when are people going to put money into this space? And they said, 
They're waiting for a three-year track record for the sector. They want to see commodities generate returns for three years rolling. If they can do that, then they think the, the coast is clear to make investments. And I went back and I looked at it, and that was definitely the case in the 2000s. Bull market started in 2002. Money started to flow in 05, And then it mostly went into the equities. Um, and then that created massive cost inflation between 05 and 08. And then finally in 09 and 10, you started to de-bottleneck it. And by the time you were around 13, 14, you were de-bottlenecked. I remember we got bearish on commodities in October 2012 when we knew that super cycle was over because you had enough investment. So the way you think about it, year one through three, you create a track record to let the capital in. Years four through six, the money flows in and there's not enough capacity. You can't throw a trillion dollars at an industry overnight and expect it to absorb it. It's going to create cost inflation. Prices rally again, which is why don't be thinking that you've missed this in any shape or form, because once they spin, then you get the cost inflation. And then year seven through 12, you deep bottleneck it. But you know those are the key reasons that I think they're going to be really difficult to overcome. So I'm not going to say this is going to be an easy problem to, to get through. One last point, sorry, I'm belaboring it, is policy. And that's what another way makes this different is all over the place. If all you need is clear, consistent policy, um, you know, then maybe it'll make it even that much more palatable to the to the investors. It's absolutely fascinating. I, I'm, I'm curious as to what you make of, because what you say makes so much sense, given the fact that we've been through this period of the last number of years that's been highly speculative and an awful lot of short-term money chasing um, short-term profits. That seems to have burst now. And we're starting to see a period where people are looking more towards things that have some value rather than just growth prospects. Is, does that hot money factor into this anywhere? Are we, are we likely to see? Because you, you would think that the volatility in commodities would be the perfect venue for some of this hot money to come piling into. Are you seeing that already or, or is it kind of licking its wounds still? It's licking its wounds. And I don't think it's, I mean, if anything, it's it's selling it. The hot money is selling the space over recessionary concerns. It's not buying it. And they don't believe it. You know, you look at the 2000s, it eventually came, um, you know, in terms of, you know, what happened in the lead up to the financial crisis. You know, there's a substantial amount of money in, in the system. By the way, the government, though, by March of 08, before we ever hit the peak in oil in July of 08, had done everything it can to get the money out. So it started collapsing relatively quickly because they don't want money in this space. They'll take money in, in equities and stuff like that. But when it's driving up the price of wheat, they don't want it. So I don't know, maybe it got beat up so bad in, um, in you know, 08 from the regulators, it doesn't come back in, but that's a threat. But so far though, there has been money going into European carbon credits, some of that hot money. Um, and, and, you know, you'd think that the European regulators would have, um, you know, pushed back because it is inflationary. It's bottom line, one thing that's different about commodities than financial markets, um, whether if it's carbon credits in Europe, it impacts electricity consumers are paying, or if it's weed, it impacts the bread at the, at the grocery store or gasoline at the pump. Um, the one thing that we did find out with that hot money is while it may impact the price near term, as it comes in, it'll create a spike. It can't last very long, which is the argument we made against the policymakers back in the 2000s that they should not push back so stringently on this money because ultimately the fundamentals matter. And here, I want to go through a reason why 
the hot money can't really drive it here, is commodities are a zero-sum game. For every long, there is a short, and it's critical here. An equity is long only. The SEC controls the amount of supply of an equity. So when an investor buys an equity, he's buying against a vertical supply curve. So as he buys it, he can push it up. In commodities, in in FX rates and commodities, your big futures markets, and ag was the first of these future markets, for every long, there's a short. So if I'm buying, somebody had to introduce that short on the other side. There is no constraint. The only real long-run constraint here is the, let's say it's wheat, would be the actual supply of wheat in the market that could dictate um, where the ultimate price is. And that that is a very fundamental difference here that, um, you know, we pushed back in the 2000s against the regulators, you know, saying this money was creating it because ultimately it's creating price discovery and trying to solve this problem by attracting investment into the space. So um, I know it's probably, a, you, know, a, you know, too much you need to know about these markets, but I do want to just reiterate that. These are zero-sum game markets that for every long there's a short, it makes them very different from financial markets. So, Jeff, it seems like when someone looks at the commodity sector, particularly if we picked carbons, you know, in this recent research report, we had carbon is in the eye of the storm. You make the case that part of the problem that we're facing, particularly in the energy sector and related, is underinvestment. And, of course, Governments seem to be getting in the way of that. Europe seems to be kind of realizing it shot itself in the foot. But to get companies to want to invest, there's going to have to be a change in psychology amongst the companies and to the government to some degree. That has to occur to help solve the problem. And in the meantime, the psychology of the investors is negative. So it seems like net net everyone, it can't be everyone, but it's sort of negative on the, the whole sector. Obviously, that's going to have to change for any of this to get better. Would you think that the businesses that have to invest start to change their view before the speculators do, or do the speculators follow what the uh, uh, the businesses are doing in terms of a change in psychology? I think it all occurs at pretty much the same time, and it has to come from the same place. There's only one place the money comes from. It comes from you know, these big pools of funds. It starts with the real money guys and then goes into the active, you know, investors, whether it's a hedge fund, speculator, whatever you want to call it. But it has to start with that real money group, you know, pushing it through. And so they need, the world needs to create an environment where they feel safe to do it. And as you pointed out, you know, policy, I like to say it doesn't need to be a good policy or a great policy or even a mediocre policy will work as long as it's stable that they know it won't change. And by the way, I can't emphasize how important that is for policymakers not to change their mind because once they change their mind, then the investor gets scared that something else is gonna be different. So that's that's you know point number one. And then point number two, they've gotta be comfortable that returns are gonna be there tomorrow. And a lot of people are worried about recession, worried about um, they bought the peak, um, you know, this is like the historical flash in the plan pan that commodities usually generate over the last 10 years. Um, and they're unwilling to do that. They got to get over that hurdle. Um, and then once they decide to do it, now here's the other thing too um, about this is there's nobody at many of these big asset, you know, you know, managers that actually can trade this stuff or know anything about it. So then you got to go hire the portfolio manager that knows something about commodities or energy and metals and agriculture. And then once that person is sitting there, then they buy the stocks. 
Now to answer your question, now they, the company has the money, now they got to go spend it. And so when they spend it, um, one, they got to you know, know that um, the, the investor has given them the green light to spend it. Because the problem right now is that they know that the investor won't let them do it because the investor, oh, by the way, this is the case for the investors, as well as like, you know, OPEC governments, everybody wants their money back. Because remember, oil prices were negative two years ago. So right now, part of the reason why they're not, nobody's given the green light, everybody wants their money back. Okay, then we get to the point that the, the corporate begins to spend. And once they began to spend, just like the asset manager that didn't have the, um, the guy on staff to, to trade this stuff, as you pointed out, it's a question around rigs, the question around you know truck drivers, all of this stuff. It's not teed up for it. And then you start pumping the money in, then you hire the people, wages go up, inflation happens in the space. Um, and then finally, after a couple of years, you finally deep bottleneck. That's why I think these things really, it takes you know that 10 to 12 years is then finally after about six or seven years of all of this put together, the system can start to you know, digest that capital. You know, I like to point out in the dot-com boom of the 90s, or, you know, you threw, you know, trillions of dollars at that. It took a long time to absorb it. Then the thing boom of this past decade, they threw, again, trillions of dollars. And equally for the commodity space, because, you know, it atrophies when they're not spending money. Um, you just can't, you know, I think there's this vision that you do, in the real world, you know, you move trillions of dollars into something and it happens overnight. You simply cannot do that. And so to answer your question, it has to start with the asset managers first, and then it moves to the corporates. And then you got to put all of the apparatus and infrastructure and institutional arrangements in place to absorb it. But I think the one that, that's really critical here that's, that's missing is you need the policy. You need that clear, consistent, and coordinated policy to get this to happen. So when I hear you say that, it's like, we are so early in this process of trying to get the investment needed. I'm just thinking about energy for a second. I mean, once you break it down like that, I mean, now I can see why it takes so long because it's like we have a catch-22. Nobody believes it, so the investment can't get started. And as long as the investment doesn't get started, the problem's getting worse. But then the government wants to pursue the same policies got us in it. It's just kind of a vicious cycle until something changes. I like to say it's never about the supply and demand of the commodity itself. It's always about the supply and demand of the money used to produce the commodity. You know, the, you know, many of the big bears out there don't realize that, hey, is the oil's there. I'm not going to deny it. I think everybody listening to this podcast will agree the oil's out there, the metal's out there, the food is out there. It's all out there. You just got to get the money to it to develop it. And, you know, we've gone through this. It takes a long time. And, you know, that will has to start with, um, I'd argue, with the government's creating an environment that's conducive. The other thing, too, about this, I, I what you're calling, I call it the volatility trap, where the higher the volatility, the less incentive anybody has to put anything into this space, which then makes the ball go higher. And so you get into this vicious cycle that reinforces higher volatility. The only entities that can break that ball trap are, are governments that have the balance sheets big enough and the, the fortitude to go in there and break it. And, and whether if it's providing like an agriculture, you know, farm subsidies in case something bad happens. Now, the problem is it's easy to provide farm subsidies to somebody farming um, 
um, soybeans in case something bad happened. Good luck in providing that subsidy for somebody producing a barrel of oil in this day and age. By the way, in the 70s, it was palatable, and that's how we actually solved it. Um, as recently as 2001 in that California power crisis, the regulators had to come in and step in and do things like that. Um, so it's not like, you know, it's just, there's a long history of governments having to break it. But again, going what really makes this one different is um, it's going to be really hard to come up with an entity big enough to break this fall trap in the hydrocarbons. It's so interesting. And I think we're going to spend a fair bit of time talking about policy. Uh, but before we get to that, Jeff, can I just ask you, I'm curious, you mentioned that um, back in the last spike, you pushed back against regulators to try and explain to them they were perhaps compounding the problem. I'm curious to know what the response to that was, because I, I suspect you guys are going to be going back to the regulators again, given the state of policy and the predicament that we find ourselves in. It seems everywhere you turn, there are policies being made, whether it's government policy or regulatory policy, that is going to require some pushing back against. But now, obviously, we have this overarching bugbear of ESG that's going to constrain a lot of practical policy responses. So what was the response back then? And have you had any inkling as to how the potential response functions might have changed this time around? It really depends upon, you know, the different policymakers around the world and the constituencies. Um, you know, I, I look back, you know, the West Coast, you know, whether if it was, you know, up in the, you know, that, you know, the Oregon and Washington area all the way down to the Department of Water. I think, you know, they, they did a fantastic job and they understood the problems and, and um, you know, I think it's BPA and the Department of Water. I just, this is going back to my memory back then. Um, you know, so I'm, I can't, I'm not going to give you a blank, blanket answer on, you know, if some do, some, but one thing is different about then versus now is the, the and, I, and I'm not old enough in the 70s to know what was what going on in the, in the 70s, but I think it would be similar today is it, the focus in the 2000s was about solving this through market-based solutions um, as opposed to fiscal transfers and things like that. I don't, you know, I don't want to be speaking out of turn here in any possible way, but um, I, I do know in many cases, you know, is a windfall profit tax um, where the you know the revenues are used to help you know people buy their energy. I think most economists will agree that's a very inflationary outcome. Are doing um, tax holidays. This stuff did was not done in the two thousands. So discussion was very different and about what will work and what won't work. And, I, and I'm pretty sure that the the stress on the policymaker this time around is very different than what it was in the 2000s and I think it's going to be it's going to be much more difficult to to get to answers because I, I guess yeah the way you could describe it in in the 2000s is the economy was not in the same shape as it you know with rapid inflation or anything like that when it happened. And so you didn't have disadvantaged groups getting really hurt by it, and you could end up focusing on the solution to the problem. And I think, you know, that that's what's going to make this one um, a lot more difficult, because I don't I'm pretty sure that the policymakers who made these decisions are pretty aware of of the implications, but um, but they don't know how to deal with how do you protect the consumer in this kind of environment? By the way, the other way, they, you know, there's so many different taxes you could levy to do this. Um, 
I think that the knee-jerk reaction of levying the tax to the um, producer of this stuff is the part that is I, I find surprising. Because you've just, I think most of the listeners understand that what they've done here. They've shut down the ability for investment to flow to solve the problem through a windfall profit tax. At the same time, they're stimulating the demand. There could be another way to tax that tax, you know, to create that revenue to protect the disadvantaged consumers in this environment, which, you know, I think everybody on this call is going to agree that's probably an important thing to do in here. Because remember, these things are food and fuel that keep you alive. So I don't think anybody's going to disagree with the merits of the consumption subsidy. The question is, how do you raise the capital to create that? And I think doing it as a windfall profit tax is, is very different. But I think the point to answer your question in the 2000s and dealing with the policymakers there, that leg in there of protecting the disadvantaged consumer was not a part of it because the consumers, you had, you know, your income equality was much greater back then. And the economy was in a very different environment. The other goods in their consumption basket weren't going up at the same time. Um, so, and you didn't have a food crisis as well. So this was what, you know, a food crisis, an energy crisis at the same time that really complicates this one. Well, we hadn't yet had all the bifurcation and wealth yet either, which we have now, which is part of the same landscape you're talking about. Absolutely. And that I think is, that's, you know, that's what makes this one really different. In fact, that's one of our pillars about what creates this commodity super cycle is the redistribution policies that are required to solve the income inequality issues. I recently heard you talking to your friend and former colleague, David Greeley, a fascinating conversation. And you, and you made such a point that really slapped me around the face. And, and I've been thinking about it ever since I listened to it. And that was your point about the only two assets on anyone's screen that are up this year and the way you put that into context as to what they were and I don't I don't want to put the cup before the horse I'd much rather you kind of talk about that to the audience rather than me pull the rug out from under you so if you could talk about that I, I think it's a conversation that bears repeating for those who've heard it and also I think there's just so much to dig into with that yeah the, the point I was making was you know the only thing up on your screen year to date two assets besides the dollar and the ruble by the way let's take the currencies out and again, <laughs> um, again policy done done very well with the ruble um, you know the uh, the two other two assets that are up are hydrocarbons and carbohydrates and the difference between a hydrocarbon and a hydrocarbon is an oxygen that's it and what are hydrocarbons carbohydrates that lay dormant underneath the ground until the oxygen finally goes away. And again, we're made of carbon, trees, plants, food, all of that are more in that carbohydrate point. And here's the point I was making previously is inflation is the beginning of times as we could light a fire have been driven by carbohydrates or, or hydrocarbons and, you know, inflation price levels, whatever it might be, it may have been wheat way back before, may have been, you know, coal or peat moss or whatever it might be, but it's all that same group of carbons that keep us alive. And what's forgotten here is, you know, 4.5 billion people today would not be alive if it weren't for nitrogen. Nitrogen is a hydrocarbon. Now, it's the fertilizer that, that is used to enhance yields to produce um, agriculture. And our body our bodies utilize the hydrocar or the carbohydrates to create energy in the exact same way our cars utilize the hydrocarbons 
to create, you know, our transportation. So carbon is a critical input to our societies going back for millennia. So the fact that they power our societies is critical here. And when we think about economists, they don't put a lot of emphasis on on this. Why? And that's because it's too small a share of GDP to matter. But let's take GDP out of the equation and let's start talking about this as a physical system. There is no physical system without these two groups of commodities. They're the foundation. They keep us alive and they keep us warm. That's why the food and fuel, are, they are, they, they keep us alive and they keep us going, whether it's through you know, heat, transportation, or, or industrial manufacturing. When we think about the you know, decarbonization, is, is that, you know, there's a fine line between us. But I want to make sure all of our listeners, I'm a firm believer that climate change is a really important, you know, uh, goal here. We have to deal with this problem. It's just that, you know, we have to deal this in the way of recognizing the importance that these carbons play in our society. So, um, you, know, you know, in terms of the, you know, the investment, you've got to do, maintain some resemblance of investment in this system until we can create another system or we don't know how we're going to solve this problem. It could be solved through carbon capture or something like that. So, you know, abandoning this space and creating these pressures on a critical um, industry, these two critical industries, hydrocarbons and carbohydrates, I think is, you know, you know, creating a problem here. As, as Sultan Al-Jaber, the CEO and ADNOC in UAE's climate czar recently put it to me, hold back emissions, not progress. And, you know, as, at this point right now, um, you know, it's kind of concerning that we're creating these obstacles to overall growth. So I think you get the point here is in, if you look at over the last two years, the best two performing assets have been hydrocarbons and carbohydrates, not Bitcoin. Yeah, it's, it's, and until I heard you say that, it really hadn't occurred to me. But you know, it's it's kind of one of those things that it's impossible to unhear when you put it in those terms for me. You know, and then you realise that how important it is to the ninety nine percent. And this has been kind of the missing link of all this is that what's happened in the last twenty years has been geared towards the one percent, and anything that's really happened has been to either protect or enhance them. Or, or and we can argue whether it was designed to do that or that's just been the outcome, but that has been the outcome, inarguably. And now we're at a point where you have to protect the 99% from really important things, and basic things such as hydrocarbons and carbohydrates. And that kind of brings us around to policy because in order to do that, as you say, you've outlined perfectly what we need, but in a time of such political fragility, are those kinds of policies even possible given the emotionally charged debate around climate change and the inability, it seems, particularly the Biden administration. I mean, they've they've kind of come out with some, I mean, flat out amateur moves in terms of trying to quell this. But is that their fault or is it impossible in such a febrile political environment to make the kind of policies that you think would make a difference? Yeah, going back to your point in the 2000s, if you and I were having this discussion, you wouldn't even preface it that way. And that's what really makes the current environment incredibly difficult. I'll be honest with you, I get nervous talking about these issues and make sure I don't say the wrong thing in, in, in discussing it. And to answer your question right now, the two sides are so divided on this, is that uh, right now we don't have a solution to it. And by the way, the solution here 
is it is so simple. This is what's so frustrating about it. Put a price on carbon. We don't need scope two, scope threes, and all this stuff. Put a price on carbon, and everybody pays their fair share in terms of how much carbon they're emitting. And that's it. And then so you take somebody like Amazon, biggest energy consumer in the world, the biggest emitter in the world. Think about all those boxes being delivered at your house and everything. They didn't pay a price for it. And by the way, ultimately, when we order the boxes to our houses, it's not Amazon. We as the consumer are the ones that need to pay the price for the emissions that we created to get all those 13 boxes sent to our houses. Instead, the, the, the system that's been created, you know, in the form of ESG is focus on those that create this stuff. Um, you know, like this, take the BP shells and exons and so forth. And that's where the concentration, the, you know, the punitive financial aspect has, has occurred. You know, and the reason why is, you know, I'm not going to blame ESG. It's just an artifact for the world we live in today is there hasn't been policy to create that. And I look back and let's think about there's three sectors in the world that create two thirds of the emissions, the U.S., Europe and China. You know, those are the big three blocks. And they're almost, you know, the, in fact, if you look at it, you know, China's around, what, 33%, U.S. is around 20 and then the rest goes to and belongs to Europe. And when we look the uh, the policy, Europeans definitely can do the carbon price and carbon tax. They got it. Um, I'm not going to say they're doing great on the ESG front or because it's actually creating some, you know, capital misallocations there. But they're doing fabulous on creating that compliance market. And by the way, I don't think there's such thing as a voluntary market. And I don't mean to, you know, all due respect to everybody out there and watching what's going on in Germany today, the the voluntary market is not working too well. You know, you need a compliance market. And what is a compliance market? You get fined or you go to jail if you don't hit those targets. Because once you do that, that's what creates a market that's functioning. And when when we look at, you know, China, China will get on board. What is China's beef with Europe? They don't want the one and a half degrees. They want two degrees. Give them the two degrees. We may be on our way to four for all we know. Um, Give them the two degrees and get them on board with the the carbon price immediately because that's your solution to this. Now let's turn to the Americans. Let's say we have Europe and, and China, you know, put together with functioning carbon price. Now, how do we get the United States in here? Therein lies the problem. It's taxation without representation. You're talking about 250 years of history here. You got to overcome. And I look at, you know, when did ESG really come about? It was in that 2013, 14, and by 17 is full steam ahead. Why? Because they were trying to fill a void that policymakers weren't creating. So I I, I may be critical of of ESG, um, but it is is the, it, it was, the intentions were the right intentions. The consequences were probably not what people planned in terms of what we look at today. Because clearly we have more emissions, we have more, we have no investment in hydrocarbons, and we're, you know, we have some inflationary pressures off of it. Let's go back and let's take this really back to what the core is. 2009, Obama could not get it through. And had Obama got it through, in 09 and 10, we may be in a very different environment today than what we were before. Now, I'm not going to get into politics or anything like that, but if I trace back to, you know, where, why we're in it, you know, there's a whole host of reasons. By the way, my memory is not even enough. Actually, just recently, I realized that 
you know, China could be on board with, with Europe, get Europe and China um, together with that carbon price, with, then you got to get the U.S. And now let's ask, you know, the politics of that. It's a really, really difficult problem. So anyway, that gives us the history of, of where we are today. So if, if we think about this and we think about policy responses, obviously we're coming into midterms now where control of the Senate and the House looks set to change. I mean, they're razor-thin margins as it is. It feels like that is going to go back the other way. Can anything get done or is this simply going to be a case of people are going to sit this out for another two years of kind of stalemate and from the energy side, hope a Republican government comes in that will be more friendly towards the kind of capex and the expansion that the industry needs in order to solve the problem? Actually, here's a point that I think a lot of people don't realize. Republicans, conservatives, what do you want to have? have historically been the ones that drive environmental policy, not Democrats or labor. Let's go actually to the word it's used to go back before America's and look at Britain is the word, you know, the conservatives, conservation of resources, capital and, and your natural endowment of natural resources. That's what they did. Um, labor, what is labor focused on? Wages and growth. They're pro-growth, pro-wages. Um, and somehow in the last 10, 15 years, we've gotten this all upside down from history. And you look at who drove the big environmental initiatives. Remember, we had the war on acid rain. It was the Republicans and the conservatives in places like Britain or Reagan and Thatcher that ultimately put the nail in the coffin on, on this stuff. Um, I'm not trying to take a political point one way or the other here. All I'm trying to do is point this out is that conservatives have been the ones that driven this. And we have a blueprint in our, in, you know, our DNA. We have done international cross-border um, environmental policy, and we've done it really well. Does anybody on this podcast, you know, know that there is no more acid rain? Maybe there's some pockets of it here or there in the world, but we got rid of it. And, you know, I'm old enough and yeah, Grant, I know you, you, you've got the gray hair on in your head, too, in the terms of the, you know, remembering it was the gargoyles on the Cologne Cathedral where the poster child of, um, you know, acid rain. And the setup was very similar in the 60s and 70s as it is today, in the sense that you, know, you have the, um, the Europeans very anti-fossil fuel, um, and they were the ones that were impacted by it significantly first. The Americans and the Soviets ignored it, just like the Americans and the Chinese did today. And then finally, it became unbearable. And by the way, the sulfur creates smog. And remember, the smog was bad. The acid rain went into the lakes and the forests and everything like that. Now, I, by the way, I know there's some of you out who are total pros on that go, carbon's way worse than um, sulfur. I'm going to agree with that. You can see and find the sulfur. So I just want to use this as an illustration that, hey, we have the DNA to, to solve this problem. Um, so let's go back and go, what did it take to get the Americans and so Soviets? Because it's kind of the same setup. You had the Americans, you had the Europeans, and then you had the Soviets. Today, you have the Americans, you have the Europeans, and you have the Chinese. Um, how did you get the Americans and the Soviets on board? It became so obvious to every person in these countries they needed to deal with it. Now, I like to call it the Lake Erie moment. And the Lake Erie moment was, you know, you know the Lake Erie was on fire. Um, people could see it and go, hey, it's time to do something about it. And it was Richard Nixon who created the EPA 
and who signed in law the Clean Air Act amendment that started this process. However, you know, I don't want to completely leave out the Democrats in here. It was finally Jimmy Carter who actually got the deal done. And it was in 1979, um, the Soviets and the Americans wrapped up a nuclear, inside of a nuclear treaty, rules and regulations around desulfurization to solve this problem. And that nuclear treaty was important because they could then impose it on Warsaw Pact and NATO countries as law. Remember I told you compliance markets are critical to solving this problem. So now you had law put in place. We now know, you know, looking back that, you know, the Germans cheated with Volkswagen running into problems, but you had the capability to fine Volkswagen when they did it. Right now, there's no capability to, to fine anybody if, you know, if they don't meet the, the, the rules and regulations around it. And that was critical that came out of that, you know, the war on acid rain was that you had the rules and regulations that were put in place that were, that, you know, had fines and things of that nature to create. Now, what did that they do? Once you had the compliance boundary set in line, now you had that supply constraint to create value in sulfur markets. That's why the Europeans have this right. But that compliance market has the rule, has the boundary, and they got value in that, that carbon credit. You did the same thing by creating value in that sulfur price. And guess what? Venture capital came in and people created solutions. And by the way, it wasn't a car company. It was not a, a um, you know, oil company or utility that solved the acid rain and you know, decarbonization problems that were occurring. It was companies like BASF. You know, engineering companies, technology, by the way, they were German companies because they had to get those engineering companies that know how to do this stuff and do it well. But there was a profit incentive. They created things like the catalytic converter that ultimately solved this problem. Then you, and by the way, there's guys like me probably in 1970s going, guess what? Because, you know, I think you've heard our estimates on dissolved decarbonization, $16 trillion this decade. $32 trillion the next decade, um, biggest expense. And there's probably a guy like me sitting around in 1972 going, to solve this sulfur problem, it's going to cost us trillions and trillions, blah, blah, blah. It didn't cost that much because once you had that price of sulfur um, trading um, and then you created the incentives for venture capital to go in there and work their magic. And then, you know, I always like to say, do not bet against an engineer, give them enough time and money. They will solve the problem. And they solved it. And the amount it cost to solve acid rain was a fraction of what anybody had ever thought before. Um, so there, you know, the, the silver lining in that is, Hey, we solved it. We know, had the DNA to, um, you know, to create the institutional, um, framework to do it. So, you know, th th we know how to do it. The question is, we just, how do we get the incentive to go do it? So that brings up the question, if you had to speculate, I mean, it's quite clear we're going to need a crisis of some serious proportions. Once you frame it like what it took with the gargoyles, that's a perfect mental image. Obviously, there are going to be problems, food and energy in Europe this winter, almost for sure. Given how the world looks today, could you kind of concoct a Lake Erie moment that might catalyze the, the fractured powers that be to, to try to do what needs to be done from your perspective? I was walking down, I was on South Beach recently, walking down that main avenue there where the boardwalk is, and there's water coming across it already. Um, so, you know, 
You know, is it something like Miami under a few feet of water or something like that? Is that your Lake Erie moment? I don't know what it is, but we're getting close to having one of those moments. That's that would be the good kind of moment. Unfortunately, as you pointed out, we made what may happen sooner is the food crisis and energy crisis get to a point which is, um, you know, unbearable. And that one, you know, starts to have a humanitarian toll as opposed to a avenue coming underwater. Um, um, so I, you know, you know, there's, there's, there's bad ways to get to this and there's better ways than, you know, less bad ways to get to it. Um, but unfortunately I think it's going to take, I like to point out with take COVID, we were told it was bad. We were told it was coming our direction. Did we do anything collectively about it until it was knocking on our back door? The answer is no. And unfortunately that's probably, you know, the, the, the direction we're probably going on this. Um, you know, I hope. It's not one of those humanitarian situations, um, you know, given the tea up you have in, in, in food and fuel right now, and that it's more likely, um, you know, that avenue going down South Beach in Miami underwater, and we all realize the severity of this, and that's how we get to it. But it's going to be something like that that, that actually is going to, you know, you know, trigger it. And, you know, the you're talking about, you know, the politics changing right here. I mean, this is an opportunity for for, for many politicians to, to jump on this and try to change it for the good. Um, but, the, you know, I think the, the point is that it's just, it's a logjam. But it has to start, you know, it is really an American issue as opposed to being a European or, or Chinese because, you know, the Chinese, you know, you, you know, you know the more of a, call it a benevolent autocratic type system, there, they can make the decisions themselves and just do this. And I can assure you they will, everything you've heard coming out of Xi Jinping, he's going to do this. Um, and by the way, one thing about them is, you know, if they say they're going to do this, they're going to do it. Um, and so I have all the confidence they'll get there, but they, th- why would they go there if the Americans don't? Because they'll just disadvantage themselves. And so um, that's why I say this, this really boiled the, the weight of the shoulders are put on um, you know, the Americans, American Congress to, to create this solution. You've done a wonderful job of painting in a short period of time the perniciousness and the complexity and the severity of the problem. So if I asked you to take off your analyst hat for a second and then put on your investor hat, how should investors think about positioning themselves? So, I mean, I know we're talking about problems, but we're also capitalists. So if you want to either protect yourself from the consequences of these outcomes or profit from this environment, given the fact it's going to take time for people to come in behind you, how would you think about positioning yourselves for the environment ahead, given the way the problems are lined up as you see it? Well, I think being long, um, you know, hydrocarbons is, you know, clearly, you know, you know the most profitable Point here, and part of it is because there's no investment going into the space. You look at the equities; they're trading in free cash flow yields. The oil guys at twenty to thirty percent, and the coal guys are trading at seventy-five to a hundred percent. Under investment in commodities, the the roll yield. On, by the way, we're at one hundred and eight dollars a barrel this morning. The front end spreads four dollars a barrel. That means every month you collect almost four percent off rolling the front month. These are huge um, returns to going into this space. Now, the question is, who's going to come in there and do it? They're afraid of it and want to be on the ledger of these companies. And, and by the way, again, it's not, it's, it needs to create an environment so people feel safe to do this because, you know, by the way, the right way to do this is 
the way the policy should do it, tax the oil consumption, take the revenues from those taxes, give them to lower income groups to be able to afford the food and the fuel, and then take the rest of it and buy green investments to solve climate change. You know, so, you know, you know, when, you know, thinking about, you know, being, doing this and doing it in a socially conscious manner is, you know, it takes some of the, you know, buy a basket of this and mix it, you know, between um, the dirty stuff and, you know, the clean stuff. And um, so, but I think, you know, you know, just to answer your question, food and fuel are the ones with the best returns. And unfortunately, because remember, that's got carbon in it. Put this way, the higher the carbon content of the commodity, the bigger the returns are. Um, and I'm not trying to in any way speak and, you know, you know uh, be an anti-climate change here. It's just a fact of what we're looking at right now. By the way, the only way you're going to change that, so that's not a true statement, put money to work into the space and then that price will go down. Um, and then put more money, take some of the profits you take out of it and put more money into to other types of solutions that solve this on a longer term basis. Jeff, what about the metals? Because the hydrocarbons and the carbohydrates leaves out the metals. And, uh, and again, we've seen a very divergent move by copper, for example, recently, you know, which, which everyone is looking at the chart of copper and saying, well, here's your recession. Dr. Copper is telling you that we're in it already. How do you handicap that and the effect that the lack of it being part of that carbohydrate and hydrocarbon complex has on it? Is it purely the dollar? Is it sniffing something out? How do you look at the metals currently? By the way, it takes a lot of carbon to produce copper. And what yes. is aluminum? It's just solid carbon because it's been through that electro, you know, ultimately it was produced in China by coal or something like that. So I'm not going to say they're they're immune to this, this story in any sure. shape or form, but I think you're spot on. It's been really been dragged down by what's going on in China. And I've come to the conclusion a strong dollar and a weak China are one and the same. And so is, is the drag on metals the strong dollar or is it the weak China? Both are getting you to the same, same place. And so what really needs to happen here to get the upside back in the metal space is we need a much stronger China. Uh, and I tend to go back to the point that right now what we're seeing is improving. I know the investors today all want to sell, you know, whether if it is, you know, based upon U.S. recession or China or of European recession fears, um, they're selling pretty much everything. And today they're selling everything in sight with the exception of the dollar and ruble. And the, I, I think that's missing the point that particularly for China, the recession happened. It happened back in April and May when you had severe lockdowns to deal with the COVID, with their zero COVID policy. So far, you have the third largest stimulus on record and you have relatively low inventories. Um, so tight physical markets. Um, with a lot of stimulus coming out of China, um, so far the mobility data points to improvement, um, as well as as looking at you know the credit data. They all suggest sequential improvement. Um, so you know, we we stick to our guns that you're going to see a better China towards the uh, the end of this year. Particularly, remember you have the Party Congress in late October November, um, which Xi Jinping will want a relatively strong uh, economy going into that, um, as well as going you know, into the into the March time period where they pick a government. So from now to October until March, um, you know, I like to say is that, you know, even in a place where you'll argue that they have, you know, more of a single autocratic type of, of government, they got to be worried about the same things the Democratic guys in the West are about. And strong economies make people happy about leaders. 
So you know, I would tend to think that um, you, you have you know a yeah the stars are aligning for a much better second half in China. So how do precious metals fit into the equation? We've got the industrial metals, we've got the food and the hydrocarbons. How do the precious metals fit into this mix? Because it seems like it ought to be a good environment for them, but while gold's actually done okay this year, relative to everything else, it's it would seem like that's a, a pretty good fit for all this, and yet it doesn't seem like it's they're very well loved. <laughs> Same dynamic as in the base space. It's the it's the dollar is acting as a as a big drag, but it's the same point. Is that China and India um, are the biggest consumers of gold, so it's physical gold de- demand that was missing back in a- April and May by what was happening in China. And you overlay gold or copper, or whatever it is, against the C and H. You just it's crystal clear that correlation. Yeah, just they sit on top of one another. And so, it, you know, in terms of thinking about the legs of demand for gold, you have you have the monetary demand in the West that when you have recession fears, inflation fears, they they go up. The ETF has been liquidating because of concerns around what's going on in China recently. And then, in terms of looking at the central bank demand, if the dollar is so strong, why why do you need gold? So you aren't seeing the the political, you know. Liquid, you know, liquidation of dollars to buy gold, and then you don't have the physical demand coming out of China. But all that stuff reverses if you get a strong China. Strong China then begins to weaken the dollar, more demand for gold from the the EM central banks, and uh, then you start to be focused on using gold as a hedge. But more broadly, I come to the conclusion everybody wants to look at gold and call Bitcoin digital gold, blah blah blah. I don't think gold or Bitcoin, they don't hedge inflation. And I just go to one simple observation. Neither one of them are in the CPI. The best inflation hedges is the stuff with carbon in it because carbon is everywhere. It's in our clothes. It's in our eyeglasses, my phone, everything on my desk here has got carbon in it. That's why oil in, you know, is the best hedge against inflation. I go back to my point, hydrocarbons and carbohydrates hedge inflation going back to the beginning of and that's not any different. And gold and Bitcoin definitely aren't going to be doing that for you because they're not in the CPI. They're what we consume every day. That notion that gold is a great hedge for inflation was created in the 70s. Not a lot of evidence after beyond that. Um, and, the, and I still wonder how much of that was simply gold was a controlled price pre-71 Nixon took the U.S. off the gold standard 71. Gold exploded as it repriced to the rest of the world. The inflation took off because you didn't have that anchor in gold. And they both occurred at the same time. And we got this belief that um, gold is a great inflation hedge. I will tell you this. The one thing I am comfortable about what gold hedge, it will hedge debasement against the dollar. And by the way, we've seen enough to know that dollar debasement does not mean physical inflation. And let's go back to the, where the word debasement comes from. Debasement, the word debasement comes from Roman times when you would put base metals into the precious metals and you would debase them with copper. So if you owned gold, it was the perfect hedge against debasement. And that was the case. You know, we printed dollars out of COVID in or, you know, mid-2020 and, and it did great. So it hedged you against that debasement, but it didn't hedge you against inflation. And I don't really see any reason you know, you, why you can be rest assured it will hedge you because it's not in the CPI. It's not. Let's go back to oil is what's in the CPI. Jeff, it's fascinating to put all this together because I keep kind of have this thought rattling around in my head that 
for everything you're describing, it feels like there's a fairly strong possibility that we could have a recession coupled with rising commodity prices, which might throw the cat amongst the pigeons and might challenge an awful lot of people's assumptions about what always happens during commodities. You know, if China are stimulating aggressively and looking to achieve a certain outcome, we have the bottlenecks, we have supply constraints, we have everything in position. It seems to me, at least, that we could see a recession in the West coupled with rising prices. Is, is that a possibility or am I way off base there? Oh, I think you're way spot on. And we saw that in the 70s, 70, 71, you saw it. You know, in the, um, you know, 73, obviously you did because you had that oil crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and 78, you saw it again. We also saw it in 80, 81. So, um, you know, it was finally, it was late 80, 81 that 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 super cycle was over. But here's a really important point about all of that time period is there was a decade of a massive CapEx boom that occurred over that time period. By the way, it was driven by the same things. Today, you have the war on income inequality. There, you had the war on poverty. That was LBJ's big, great society thing. Um, Then you had um, the war on acid rain. Today, we have the war on climate change. And then you had a cold war between the U.S. and the Soviets. Um, Today, you have a cold war between U.S. and China. Um, Military spending was huge during that time period. Remember, it was the guns and butter with Vietnam and everything. Um, so, you know, it's almost teed up for the exact same thing. But I think the key message here is in 1979, when Volcker really took up interest rates, it was after a decade of a huge CapEx boom. You take interest rates up massively today to solve this, we have a decline in CapEx, not a big CapEx boom. And, I, you know, I'm just going to go back to, you know, the basics here. The only way you de-bottleneck the system is spend money. And... Nobody spent any money of any serious scale for 20 years. China spent some money, and we free-rided off investments in, in China over the last two decades. But you think about all that money sitting in that, those financial markets. A lot of that was able to go in there and chase those equities higher with higher margins because they weren't putting the money into you know, physical investments. Now, all of a sudden, we say we need a lot of money to go solve all these problems. What's one place you can go get it? Um, one obvious place would be that that financial space. And you ultimately have to put it back in there where we should have been doing over that time period. So that's one thing to keep in mind about, you know, your, your question and where you see, you know, potential commodity price rises, inflation is we haven't been investing and um, that's going to have to happen. And the, the other reason why they don't want to raise rates too high is um, you don't want to end up cutting off that capex cycle. I'm going to say something here. I'm not. I don't mean to be controversial or anything like that. But everybody's like, "Oh, that you know, Volcker was the hero that solved the inflation problem," or you know, and you know, was it Arthur Burns by letting it run hot that created the capex boom over that last decade that did it? Not going to say anything there, but leave that for food for thought to think about. Um, but it, that CapEx boom was probably critical to helping us. And by the way, that CapEx boom was so big, it most likely helped create that period of low inflation, the great moderation that lasted for so long. I'm not a macro guy. I'm now speculating and getting off my, you know, what, what I know well, but it's just something to think about. Yeah, it's, it's pretty interesting to think about that. It's like, on a separate note, I mean, one of my hobby horses is, and part of the whole reason for this podcast endgame is was to talk about what 
ends the era of central bank out and out money printing. And uh, I've been very critical of the Fed and they get credit when they come in and, you know, slash rates in the middle of a crisis, but nobody ever takes them to task for the misallocation of capital as a consequence of their money printing that helped create the stock bubble and the real estate bubble. You know, so this is a little bit like that. Yep. No, I think, you know, the, but, you know, in terms of looking at the, you know, the capital misallocation that occurred is I, I would first foremost blame it on the policymakers that are creating the impediments to the, the to the, it's, you know, them pretty money would let the capital go to the right places if it could. And I, the other thing too, I think that really distorts this is these are global problems. A central bank is a local regulator. They're not a global regulator. And it goes back to what I, what I originally said, you need to have globally coordinated policy. The Fed was invented to create lending to U.S. banks. It was never invented to be a global coordinated policymaker. And the other thing, too, I was beginning to ask myself, um, thing is, you know, central banks were their independent policymakers, where they created to do what the actual policymakers themselves don't want to do. You know, which is, you know, because you think about if the policymakers do windfall profit taxes and things like that, that then, you know, stoke the inflation. They're just pushing more and more into the central banks to have to deal with it. Yeah, fascinating. Jeff, look, in closing, perhaps you could just frame this commodities, and I'll, I'll use the word, you don't have to super cycle, just for investors to kind of get their heads around how you see that long-term forecast that you said, you know, the further out we go, the easier it is to kind of forecast commodities. Just frame your your kind of big picture thoughts around the commodity complex in, in terms of the cycle you see that we're just at the beginning of. And the part of that goes to the point I was making that, you know, uh, actually another way to phrase, commodities are very easy to model, but really difficult to forecast near term. Equities are really hard to model, but very easy to forecast. Not easy, but easier than, than commodities near term. But where that statement is very different for commodities is that when you think about the longer term and that noise around weather goes away, it's supply trends and technology trends that dominate. And that stuff you can follow. We know when you can create supply. By the way, demand losses right now are not, they are just a temporary solution to this problem. It'll make prices go down, but it won't solve it long-term. That's my, my point in the 70s. You had a huge CapEx boom going into the background while you went in and out of those recessions during that time period. Right now, we don't have that CapEx boom occurring. And if the demand comes down, it's a temporary solution. As soon as demand tries to grow again, you're back into the, to the supply constraints. Um, and so when we think about those supply trends and technology, let's go back to the 2000s. You knew you didn't have enough supplies. Pretty easy to watch. You knew you had to invest. The investment occurs. Then you see it go into different technologies. You see shale starting to work. You buy about 2010. I remember it was Independence Day 2008 was the first time you go, wow, this stuff can deliver. And then they, they roll it out into oil and then... By 2012, you've seen all the capex. You now knew the technology. You've seen the trends, and you probably can say, "Hey, it's time to get out." But I think you know the key point there is, you know, the recessions and stuff like that's volatility. But supply and technology are these real long-term trends. I like to say, supply is structural, demand is far more cyclical. 
And I think the, the other point too, and when you look at the macro community in terms of what they do, they really don't deal with supply. It's really hard to see. The reason why we can do it in commodities is we can count refineries and oil wells and things like that. And you can do that bottoms up analysis, the macro level, that becomes impossible, which is why they're more focused on the cyclical demand components and pay less attention to these structural supply components. Fascinating. Jeff, you know, it's been a, I mean, I've just seen the time. The hour has absolutely flown by. I, I really can't thank you enough for this. It's such a fascinating topic and there really is nobody better, I think, for Bill and I to discuss this with than you. So thank you for being so gracious with your time. I really appreciate it. Hopefully we can cycle back and touch base on this as the story starts to evolve. There'll be so many different phases. Maybe we can talk about it when it looks like something's starting to change again. Excellent. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Jeff. All right. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Well, Bill, that was fascinating. You know, it's such an important topic to talk about this stuff. And it's such a an ice rink whenever you try and have an open conversation about this stuff in an age of ESG and climate change and the emotions that the topic stirs up. But, you know, Jeff, laying out just fact after fact after fact that makes you realize, regardless of your political bent, we are where we are. That's the bottom line. Yeah, I think if you wanted to take just a simple notion away from this conversation, he made it quite clear in a short space of discussion how difficult the problems that we face are, you know, from a supply and structural standpoint. But it also, to me, is clear that we are going to need an incredibly serious crisis to get people to say, okay, we're not going to worry about the rhetoric. We need to fix this. And, and that's why I asked about what's going to be the Lake Erie moment. It seems pretty yeah. clear that we're going to do that. I'm worried that it's going to be pictures of people freezing to death or starving this winter. Yeah, I completely I hope agree. it's not that. But we are going to need something like that. And just like the 08 crisis, it wasn't until it was clear the financial system was about to go to zero that the politicians moved the needle. I'm still upset that the Fed never got criticized for all that, but that's a whole other podcast where I'd have to interview myself. <laughs> right, right. Which, which, you know what, maybe one we day we will, we, will, we will bring in the voices in your head because that could be an entertaining conversation for everybody. But, but, it, but it's right. I mean, these are physical things, right? This is food and energy. And you can wish for a cleaner, greener earth. And, you know, the crazy thing is we all do. Who doesn't want a cleaner, greener earth? We all do. But there, you have to kind of balance that against, in the moment, the chance of, millions of people starving or freezing. Yeah, I thought his acid rain, like like I say, that Lake Erie yeah. analogy was great. And we can all remember how the mood changed and all that. And everyone became, you know, for it. And I, I think that if people want to get a primer on kind of where we are, and people don't have a good grasp of how structurally messed up we are. In addition to your buddy Doomberg and the great stuff he puts together, the recent report Jeff and his team put together was dated June 21st. It's called Carbon is the Eye of the Storm. I would encourage people to read it because this is going to be a big problem. It's going to last for a long time, and there's going to be a lot of twists and turns, and you really need to have a good grasp of where we're starting from to see how we're going to get yeah. anywhere. And, and, and look, this idea that, that, you know, it's funny, people are trying to take the other side of the commodities bubble, as it's being called by many, already, because they see this recession coming in, you know, as... Jeff pointed out there, there's a very easy way to see a recession with rising commodity prices. And so you might find that people get wrong-footed by that. Well, and, and I thought that uh, the point Greg Jensen made when we interviewed him, I hadn't thought about it till he said it, was cyclical inflation is probably peaking, 
while secular inflation is probably rising. I might, may not have gotten that exactly correct, but that is the net of what he said. And if you think about that, it kind of fits with what Jeff's saying. You can see the problem. Yeah. Everyone's going to go, hooray. It, it was not transitory, but it, we got it under control. No, it looks like it's getting under control. But until the secular component is addressed, which is what Jeff yeah. was basically talking about, it's going to be with us. Well, and that's exactly it, right? If the CPI moderates to, let's say, they get down from eight to six, do they hang the mission accomplished banners up and and cut rates and say, okay, look, we can be more accommodative now because we've got it under control? I think if they do, that'll be a, a big mistake for exactly those reasons. It'll probably also depend on what the level of spooze is. It's a it's a multivariable equation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but look, we know we know their desire is to cut rates as soon as they can, get them as high as they can, as quick as they can, so they can cut them as fast as they can to as low as they can. We know we know what the, the desired outcome is, but this structural inflation that that Jeff's highlighting here is going to be a huge pain in everybody's ass. Exactly. All right, mate, well, listen. On that cheery note, let's say goodbye. Exactly right. Exactly right. You've got got markets and tennis to watch, and I've got a dog to walk. So I say we both get to those and reconvene at some future time. What do you reckon? Okay. All right, well, thanks to you for listening to another episode of The Endgame. Uh, Enormous thanks to Jeff Curry. Uh, for taking that time out of his day to join us. It was hugely informative. You can follow us on Twitter. You'll find me uh, at TTMYGH. And I'm still at Fleckcap. He's still there, folks. Look him up before he's gone. Talk to you soon, mate. All right, thanks. Nothing we discussed during the end game should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.